film noir is a lonely place. This is the genre of obsessive protagonists, them against the world. Suspicions can't exactly abound when you have a support network to back you up, a team, a family. No surprise then how rarely noir becomes a family affair. That's another kind of movie after all. In classic Hollywood terms, that's melodrama. Familial drama pushed to the boiling point. In the 50s, this will erupt into full technicolor devastation thanks to the likes of Douglas Sirk. But melodrama goes way further back and, on occasion, it's been known to overlap with noir. Which brings us to tonight's episode. Two notable crossovers from 1945 show the intersection of these genres at their best, and not coincidentally, these are all about the darkness lurking within the American family. Timely, just as World War II was drawing to a close, these films smartly anticipate the domestic shift in conflict on the horizon. In noir, the villains needn't always be black market peddlers of stolen statues. They can emerge from the home itself, fully formed. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight it's all in the family. Leave her to Heaven gives us a woman on the verge and glorious technicolor, no less. And we were matching that up with the seminal noir melodrama, Mildred Pierce. Both films keep a sharp focus on family dynamics and the darkness that can take root within the home. The year is 1945. Let's kick things off with Leave Her to Heaven. What shall be done with a jealous woman? Shocked, aren't you? If you were having the baby, you'd love it. Well, I never wanted it. Richard and I never needed anything else. Now this... How can you say such wicked things? Sometimes the truth is wicked. Leave Her to Heaven from 1945, directed by John M. Stahl. This is starring Gene Tierney, Cornell Wilde, Gene Crane, and Vincent Price. Uh, based on the novel by Ben Ames Williams and adapted by Joe Swirling, the uh, plot We've got a, a novelist, Richard Harland, a good a good writer, noir. Uh, love those. Meets, he meets socialite Alan Barrett on a train in New Mexico. Fate finds him staying with the same friends, instantly attracted to each other. Things escalate when Alan's attorney and sort of fiancé, Russell, uh, played by Vincent Price, shows up, only for her to inform Russell that she and Richard are getting married. This is all a bit sudden, but Richard rolls with it. So sets the pace for a series of disasters, which 
involve Richard's handicapped brother drowning in a lake and Ellen plotting a miscarriage by way of a staircase, and it doesn't stop there. Um, this is a very intense movie. Yeah, it does not fuck around. Um, I I feel like uh, I, I feel like a double bill of this with possession would be my my yes. ultimate family and descent. <laughs> it's this is wild. I mean, it is wild. That's true. I guess on that level, that makes sense to me. I yeah, I was very curious because saw, I saw that note and I was like, I, it, she's well. It's not the first I, connection I'm, that comes to mind for me, but I can see where you're coming from. It's it's not a horror movie, but it's got I, it's I don't know. It's got elements of it. The lake certainly mm-hmm. plays that way very much, and her kind of descent into. I mean, she uh, is sort of an inhuman alien. Uh, yeah. Um. Cold and calculating. So, uh, so let's see. Uh, first, the title title comes from Hamlet, mm. uh, from Shakespeare, uh, specifically um, in reference to Gertrude. Uh, uh, we've got uh, we have John M. Stahl, who um, who interesting enough because this is this is uh, kind of like a rare. A, a rare technicolor film from this era and from this this genre, uh, and and when you're dealing in this kind of these kind of terms, I I immediately think of like Douglas Sirk and of course and his 50s melodramas. John M. Stahl directed two different films that Sirk would later adapt, uh, but in the 30s, Magnificent Obsession and Imitation of Life, which which mm-hmm. Sirk would go on to do himself. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I I don't know enough about Cirque's formative process and where he got started, but um, but I, he's clearly very aware of this film. Yeah, and it's I mean the the Technicolor in this is is gorgeous, right? I mean just and but in a in a sickly obsessive way. Had you seen this before? I had not. Um, nor nor had I, and I feel kind of like I. Watching it, I feel kind of weird that this wasn't as much on my radar as something I needed to see because I, uh, uh, because it does feel it feels pretty notable. I, I'm sure people's reactions to it would be uh, a little all over the board, just um, depending on on how it sits with them. But uh, but it's it's really uh, we're recording this a, a bit after uh, we we've watched it in in this particular episode's case, and it's really held up with me uh over the the last few weeks more I mean, more it, so it, than most most it, maybe it's just because it's so vivid no it it definitely it lingers with you i i think i feel like probably i, I definitely it was definitely on my radar and this is one of those titles where i was like well we're doing the podcast i'm just gonna wait to do it when it's time um i think it's one of the ones that uh scorsese has, has gotten on the stump for i feel like mm. um but uh, but no, yeah. I mean, it just is unrelenting in her machinations to to hold on to this man, and uh, especially for the time, it just feels like there's nothing she is not willing to do. Are you a Tierney fan? Uh, I only think I've only ever seen her in uh, Laura, which she's also great in. Um, yeah. With, uh, of course, with... Uh, with Price. Uh, with Price and with uh, Dana Andrews, who we saw earlier yeah. uh, this season. 
she's also with Vincent Price in Dragonwick. Um, and she's so in, uh, isn't that, no, no, that's a, never mind, that's a Lubitsch. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, she, she, I know she's in a couple other noirs and, uh, I mean, she's, she's great. And like, just, I have to assume in part was cast just for the way she would look in this technicolor treatment because the like color of her hair is part of what feels so heightened about the look of this film. Yeah. There's, there, there's just so many striking moments and I'm like, I'm in, I'm really interested because it's one of the few noir classic era noir we're going to get to that is in color mm -hmm. and, and and what that does. We're not going to get that opportunity too often to to really dive in, but like, what does that do for for the this era for the genre for you? Of like, it's it's just such a different approach. Um, uh, and I and you know there's. Like there's Hitchcock. Um, Hitchcock has some in Technicolor in the around this time that um, that that this certainly has some things in common. Again, I go back to that lake scene or or the the staircase. Mm -hmm. And I and I think of like how would I don't know how would Hitchcock stage something like this and uh, and and it, it holds up I think pretty favorably. There's good. Uh, there's there's some really strong escalating. Uh, uh, dread throughout yes. the back half of this movie. Yeah, I mean, on the technical front, it reminds me, uh, or it the movie I've connected to is um, Vertigo, and that both are are just the the way they use color is so heightened that it again, it's just it's sickly. It puts you at ill ease. Um, and the way that things are overly vibrant and saturated, as as we uh, as we close in um, as as we close in on um, on Ellen uh, in her in her later scenes, um, what about two for a comparison of um, Black Narcissus and oh and, uh, like sure yeah the, I mean definitely yeah like the vibrancy I, I can see the Palin Pressburger and, and yeah, yeah like the the female madness. Um, I can see that too. Yeah, I think it like you know. And this is before all of those movies. <laughs> this true. Is, um. Yeah, it's in, it, it's definitely interesting for the time because obviously it moves it away from like shadow and tone, and towards and and. But I think that they do a great job embracing the opportunities that color brings, and I think it. I, I mean, I don't know. I might be projecting here, but it feels. It feels appropriate for this film, both because it is it is not hard boiled, right? Like I, I definitely think it's noir, but I don't. It's not tough guys in the city, and it's out in you know New England and uh, we, the Southwest, in, the American Southwest, and they and, stop in Georgia. There, uh, yeah. there's nothing. There's the, the, so many of the the traditional touchstones for what noir is are just not here, and and still, I I I wouldn't argue it as I I would argue it as a hybrid of noir and melodrama, but I would right. I would certainly keep it. Uh, it's no it's noir. I don't right. yeah I don't know how to 
put my finger on it, but right. Well, and again, I think it's the so just going back to your question, I think it's the um, what where shadows right would be used to suggest deceit and hidden danger and that sort of thing. They replace that with the colors, and and in a way that again, it's just like the the only other thing that really it puts that it puts me in mind of mainly is is vertigo. Though I can see some of the more expressionistic uses with Powell and Pressburger with Black Narcissus or even um, the dancing sequence in uh, Red Shoes. Even uh, that, I don't know, there's just something, yeah, it, just the color it, treatment they did here is, it, yeah. And, and so watch this combine movie. That, combine that with, with the settings, and it gives another thing that I think, um, that I, I, noir feels often so claustrophobic, mm -hmm. and and that's that's not this film at all um uh, this this film takes us out into the open and and between the the technicolor and between the the cinematography it 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 lends itself to me to bigger moments in a way that a lot of noir just kind of but for budget reasons uh, plenty of the time but noir just shies away from you mm -hmm. And when I th think back on the whole of classic noir, I, I think of plenty with with taught storytelling and with great performances and 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 great small moments. But I don't usually think of noir as being a genre of big set pieces of uh, of you know Third Man or something like that aside. There's right. there, there's exceptions, but but this goes goes big and and uh, and that centerpiece at the lake really really jumps out as as something that like you're not used to seeing and on that kind of scale. Yeah, no, it's got it's got money and it puts it to, it puts it to use. Um yeah, I hadn't thought about it in that context of that but you're right that it is in a certain way like prestige, right? Like it is rising above the more sordid aspects of noir it's you know that it's about a that it has elements of melodrama and they're paying for technicolor and, and all these things and like they're doing this location shooting and, and all that but um but yeah and, and it's still I'm, so sorted i still i still marvel that after all of that and after all that build-up we spend the last 15 minutes in in a courtroom just yeah. getting shouted at by vincent price that, that part's not great um uh, it's it, it's I don't totally hate it just because uh, it's fun watching Vincent Price work himself up into a lather. Sure. <laughs> but but it's it's such a weird momentum killer and and so much of the film is is Ellen that when when she's no longer there, uh, I I still think it works and I and it, and it really only works for me because of Price. Uh, but but it it's not how I'd prefer to end it perhaps. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Price is helping a lot, and and it, it it has just enough momentum to kind of carry it through to the end. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I really didn't care that he wound up with the sister, right? I was like, I I just wanted to see Ellen, see how far Ellen would go. Yeah. Uh, Richard is 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 such a passive character. Mm -hmm. uh, like I I. It's amazing how much he goes, how much he just rolls with here, uh, to the point where, where I like, I'm not even mad at, I'm not mad at Ellen. I mean, she's clearly, she clearly needs help, 
but right. I mean, she killed his brother. Just, yes, uh, but he, he just seems like so criminally oblivious, and and just goes a lot. I, I there are a lot of red flags here. I can't, I can't square how how this man gets to gets so deep in this, and and nothing has been done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a perfect patsy for, but you know, the, the, I think it does kind of open a little bit of a what does she see in him angle that she is like, you know, what Ellen wants, Ellen gets, but like, why does Ellen want this like good looking but not, you know? I think uh, we're gonna cover. The, we're gonna return to that that topic um uh time and again there's yeah there, there's certainly plenty of uh of examples of that coming up and honestly that and we are going to cover this specifically again but that's that's a huge part of um of of the postman dynamic of sure. uh, of cora and frank and why what does um what why would why would cora want this drifter Um, who's clearly so antithetical to the life she wants. Um, Right, which I'm kind of looking forward to revisiting Postman now that that we've seen all the European adaptations, um, because I feel like those do a pretty good job of selling you on that that attraction. So I'm kind of curious to to return to the U.S. version and see see what they did with Kane. Yeah, I like like the topic for... Or another episode, but um, but I do think it's interesting getting to watch that layered over um, over uh, so many different adaptations and see how all of them approach mm-hmm. solving that. That right, same just, dynamic just like with the Marlows. With all of them, there it's 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 two people that that should not be together but still have an attraction. Right. Um, I mean, speaking of just like layers, I, I, I'm I don't know about you, but for me, watching Lever to Heaven, of course, the one film that is first and foremost in my mind is gone girl which we will be getting to later this season yeah yeah i i think that's a good call but you know she she falls in love with a uh fail son novelist and uh winds up unhappy in life and then pins a murder on him well on him as opposed to the sister right but um i mean it must have been a big influence on what's her name jillian flynn Gillian Flynn. So, um, so Ellen, um, I'm. This is this is one case where I'm. I'm more than most films of this era. I I I'm trying to like put myself into the mindset of how the film intends mm. us to read her versus how she plays because I think in this in the, in a modern context of uh uh where where you know we. Um, we want people to get help when they need it and, and, you know, recognize when you may need therapy and recognize when you, and just communication, God, between, between partners, it, all things that are not happening here. Um, Ellen to me plays as extraordinarily sympathetic, even though she does some terrible, terrible things. Um, she, she plays to me like a, a, a woman who has needed help from, early on and and has not been getting it and no one seems to recognize that mm, sure 
that I mean, yes, there's definitely it's definitely underlined that there have been warning signs for a long time, and everybody just kind of gives in, uh, which I think we'll also see with the other film in our doubleheader tonight. <laughs> um, I, well, and I think it's a, in contrast to that because I think in our I think in in our our second film, um, the person's just an outright monster. I see. I would put. I'd put. I'd put both of them in the same same category. Uh, I, I don't know. I I found I I found Ellen to be, um, uh, certainly crazy, but um, but ultimately human, and <laughs> uh, and someone who just, uh, someone who was in a in a unlike. Unlike Mildred Pierce, where where we'll we'll get to, um, I I I feel like Ellen's situation. She's in a relationship where her husband and and her family. No one's no one actually is is taking time to communicate with her uh, or try yeah, to communicate you're on being her level. Very... <laughs> I, maybe I'm being, I'm probably being too. I don't know. You're I, forgiving I, a lot. I she is she is crazy. But I mean, I, I'll say I, I don't. You're not alone in feeling that. When I was watching this on letter, you know, I was logging this on Letterbox. There's definitely some people that I follow who are like, one week after into our honeymoon, my new husband invites uh, my entire family to come stay with us. Murder is justified. So you know, I, I I don't think you're alone in that assessment. But for me, I was like, I think I was engaged with the the intended reading that the film wanted, which was. Stone Cold Killer. Insane. <laughs> she, there's just this is this to me is a is is a film where where you know you like like many times we're gonna see in in noir where we just have a couple that has no business being together mm. that that um well brings out brings out the worst in her. It's not even really bringing out the worst in him. He's he's just so passive. Yeah, he's just a little. Yeah, I think she's also just to me. And again, I'm quoted from my own letterbox review, but to me, the film positions her right as 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 this sort of beautiful carnivorous flower, right? Where it's like she is alluring and she is going to pull you in, and then she is going to eat you. And it's not like it's it's beyond morality. It's just what her nature is. She is she is that she. I don't. I, don't I think that's also. I don't disagree with any of it. She. But really I think that is, um, she she's a lot. Uh, She's and, a lot, and the and the film knows it, and uh, the the film gets all of its mileage because of it, right? Because you can't look away from her. And again, I think that is also like a very 1940s point of view on a woman in this situation. Like I, you know, I think I'm I'm playing into what the film wants me to do. I can understand where you're coming from, but I was I just kind of went like, this is what the movie wants me to think, and that's what I'm going to think. It also works. Pretty darn well, I think, on that level. Right. Um, I mean, either so. way, it 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 rips. <laughs> it's great. Um, I also just want to talk real briefly about the uh, the soundtrack because I thought it was just it, like used so sparingly in just the right couple of moments to underscore the emotional impact, but just overwhelming when it did. Like a a, 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 a monumental score. I thought. No, you're right. You're right to call attention to that. And I, and I, I, I don't think a lot of uh, film scores are used 
nearly as effectively in this era. Uh, they 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 feel um, more like an afterthought in, mm-hmm. in so many cases, uh, but definitely not the case here. You know, I didn't even think to check who uh, composer Alfred Newman. Oh, another great one for for old Al. All right, so we uh, we we paired this up with uh, with Mildred Pierce uh, from nineteen forty five. Definitely not just a classic of of noir, but uh, of 1940s films in general. Films full uh, stop. Films full stop. Let's roll the trailer. Mildred. Mildred. A name gasped in the night. One last word of a dying man, but one word that tells a thousand stories of a woman who left her mark on every man she met. Mildred Pierce from 1945, directed by Michael Curtiz, starring Joan Crawford and by Jack Carson, Zachary Scott, Bruce Bennett, Eve Arden, and Butterfly McQueen from uh, Gone with the Wind. Based on the novel by, won't believe this, James M. Kane. Uh, Patron saint of the season. Yes, indeed. With considerable updates for the screen by Ronald McDougall. Uh, in fact, the noir, the noir elements are virtually all added in, despite the, the Kane origins. Uh, so we open near the end of our story. Monty Barragon, second husband of Mildred Pierce, has just been shot dead. Mildred is in a bad state, police end up honing in on her first husband, Bert, as the primary suspect, which launches us back into just exactly how we all got here in the first place. And for a while, we leave the noir elements behind. This becomes the story of Mildred Pierce working tirelessly to get ahead and carve out a better life for herself and her two daughters, Vita and Kay. She ends her first marriage and throws herself into the restaurant business, quickly establishing herself and soon opening multiple locations, and it all comes at a tremendous price. Men in her life are habitually awful, and they're saintly compared to the increasingly troubled Vida. When we finally get back to Monty's murder, it's all too inevitable, but deeply tragic nonetheless. That sounds like a very complicated plot. And it does feel that way at the early goings where you're getting your bearings, but it actually plays out very in a very streamlined way. That's that's not nearly as naughty as that sounds. No, yeah. Once the flashbacks kick in, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get all this. Yeah, yeah. Of course, he keeps it keeps it moving and, and keeps it pretty easy to follow. Uh, so uh, Joan Crawford won Best Actress for this. Um, Deservedly. And- uh, and I, it's one of hands down the best wins in the entire category. I, th- I think, uh, way, way up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Blythe is the earliest acting Oscar nominee still alive. Mm. Uh, just as a, a tidbit. Sure. Um, and uh, and she and she certainly uh, does deserve that nod for uh, for Vita, who is a, uh, a unique creation. Mm. Um, there's of course a, a mini series starring Kate Winslet and Evan Rachel Wood uh, that uh, uh, I've not not seen. Todd uh, uh, by uh, is that Todd Haynes? Yes, yeah, Todd Haynes. Yeah, 
Uh, I've not seen it, uh, but it reportedly stays far closer to the book, uh, hmm. which means the noir elements are virtually all stripped out of it from, from my understanding. Uh, have you seen this before, Fred? I had not. What a pleasure. You seem to really take to it. As It was great. As you it was really good. It's so good. I mean, first uh, and foremost, Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford, Joan Crawford. Goddamn. She's so great. Uh, I I like I like Crawford quite a bit. Uh, I it, probably this and Johnny Guitar are my my mm. favorites from her. But I'm I'm pro Crawford for sure. Michael Curtiz, of course, Casablanca. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, uh, also White Christmas, which is a perennial in uh, my household. Yeah, he's a he's just such a a quality director that that has uh, um that has hit after hit um captain blood's really fun uh robin hood is really fun uh yes i like i I don't know um he's i feel like like obviously he's regarded well but he's not like regarded uh like hitchcock or wells but he's he's made some quality contributions well i saw somebody describe this as like knockoff wells and i was like it's a pretty good knockoff wells uh yeah uh that is underselling it this is a wonderful movie yes the the whole supporting cast does their plays their parts admirably but this is crawford and ann blyde towering uh just because just by the nature of their performances um over over the proceedings (laughs) For sure. Although I, I, several, I, I thought all three of the male suitors were were quite good as they're well. All, they're all really well cast. They all they all play their their the parts required of them to a T. Uh, Wally Wally is just so um, he has me on edge because I just don't right. like I don't like he's so he's good at playing that. Um, I just don't. Right, he's charming, like, but he's also like not so taking. Pushy. And right, he's almost not taking over for an answer, and he backs down at the last second. And you're just like, "Oh yeah. God, what, is this a movie that's no, not going to age that, well?" But uh, no, he's thankfully. just so good at getting under your skin. Yeah, um, more more so than most other noirs. This one feels like this is this is about the pursuit of the American dream. This kind of hones in on mm, uh, you know, yeah. This this is someone putting in the effort, putting in the time, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to work within the capitalist system. And uh, and do right and do right for her family and and make something she can be proud of mm-hmm. and uh, and and so at its core I think it I mean it just makes Mildred a very uh, a very endearing person and, and accessible like, yeah you see what she's working for and then right. you see what is swirling around her how that well it, yeah because it's so smart about them being like how you can project yourself onto that dream. But then also how that dream curdles into her daughter. Well, and I think it gives even before that has launched, you've got um, you've got like being a woman and being surrounded by these men and their expectations of you and how they want to treat you. And then you've got the pressures that come from even even, even at that point, her daughter's already bitten oh, by oh, the no. capitalist bug. Oh yeah, Vita's. Uh, uh, from the get go, she... day one, she's she she's a, a true villain. And <laughs> I, she might be my favorite movie villain because she's just so she sure when she when she calls the other children peasants like like this is this is a wicked little girl and I'm here for it. Uh, 
and she's just savoring every every nasty little thing she says. <laughs> uh, so no, she's not she's not corrupted over the course of the movie. She's already there, uh, um, and and Mildred's dealing with that. And then and then as as Mildred gains success, it only ratchets up, and people want a piece of that, and and her daughter wants more of that, and is never satisfied, and. And so it's really, it's really nice to see uh, a this trajectory of someone's ascent, kind of filtered through these noirish elements of like wh- who's lurking at the fringes, trying to trying trying to take their piece. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think too the the framing device, as we've talked about before, you know, the the flashbacks, the use of narration, all of this adds to the the feeling of doom right and inevitability that it it's all fated to fall apart and and tying into the the, the fatalism that that is so much of the classic noir era like like with double indemnity it's it's mm-hmm. executed very well here so that it does exactly what you said create that that kind of sense of doom hanging over proceedings there's plenty of films where uh where and usually through uh, tacked on narration, where I don't think it necessarily creates that same effect. You may know, you may know things are going to go poorly, but there, there's something about the way this is executed up front. We linger in that that opening long enough that it really sets the scene, and uh, and and it certainly creates a whole lot of well, how how are we going to get from here to there? Right. And I think too, just the the way the film imbues a few key locations with meaning uh, also gives that that first part some real heft where you're like, oh yeah, it's not just a plot question, but literally a like, how did this house get from here to there? And 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 also the 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 fact that like that beach house, we first we see it at night in the opening and then we see it at day in the flashback when we first get there, and it's you know. It is so representative of her own hope for love with Monty, and but then by the time we we catch back up to the the opening, it's you know filled with classic noir shadows, and you're like, yes, it's all gone rotten. Uh, no, I think I think that location concept is is, is super smart too. It does it it does really ground the film and create that um, that that through line. And I, I just like how I love how that opening's shot. It's mm-hmm. um, it, it's uh, it's efficient, uh, but but it doesn't rush past it. It's not um, it, it really. I don't. I, I didn't time how long it was, but but it's a good. It moves good pretty quick. It's right. Well, it's, yeah, but it's got good pace, like you said. It it, it yeah. establishes a lot of stuff. It does. It's uh, it's it takes as much time as it needs to um, for you to not feel like it's just tacked on and it, and it even though it is to the story uh i don't i i certainly did not know that the first time i watched this mm-hmm. um i had i had no idea that that was not part of the the original um the original no it feels very yeah like we're talking about i think it's because it so clearly sets the tone for the entirety of the piece that it that helps kind of unify everything i think we're just train too we see james m kane and we're like we assume that there's mm. there's a crime element to, right to, to it so i would never have thought that his original but he was apparently trying to create distance from um hmm. from postman and and take and do something a little bit different 
Too bad. Hold back in <laughs> all of all the men that are orbiting around uh, around Mildred. Uh, we have a uh, we have our en fatale. We um, we have a few instances where where you know different <laughs> different degrees of charm, I suppose. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I do find it so interesting that the the en fatale it feels like is much closer is tied much closer to the essentially to the gigolo as an archetype right then the femme fatale is to um to a female sex right like we were going through like pre-noir and we were looking at la chienne and uh, uh lola uh, pandora's box and, and all those like those were all about um female sex workers and there is and obviously the femme fatale is trading on sexuality but it feels like and i think this more is about about like society western ideals about masculinity and that if you are a man who's purely trading on your looks and charm to get by like that's a very small um hole yeah, that they're gonna just not, pigeonhole not to put you in we're just not used to seeing that from from our male. I mean, this is this is Tom Ripley, right? This is the like that right. that mold. And um, there's you know, the, it's also made me think. So there's um, I think we mentioned this before, but we've um, we discussed doing an Amphetal episode. We ultimately decided to maybe try to do like a little mini season, um, running through some of those. I think the distinction I'm trying to get at is like the Femme Fatale, as we've already seen many times now that we're like fully in swing with noir is like drawing the hapless protagonist into criminal endeavors. Whereas the homme fatale often is like seducing a female target to take advantage of the female target. This, this, the sex appeal is the mechanism in and of itself to get what they want. It's not, I'm going to use the sex appeal to get you to a spot to then do the other thing that I want you to do um which which i feel like is much more the case with the femme fatales um so anyway, so hopefully we'll, we'll kind of dig into that a little bit more but just, but i hadn't even thought about monty in that way but you're totally right that that is that he is an fatale yeah it's um we'll, we'll we'll try and flag them as as we as we have more throughout the season but monty is is our it is like the first case where it really jumps out that like that's that's kind of his mold here right. wally is just like bludgeoning his way into the the narrative. There's no he he thinks he's charming, but and he kind of is. He is he is to a degree. He, he's just like the actor's uh, charming enough that you're yes. like, I get the appeal here, but also slow your roll a little bit. Like it's it's coming out a little strong. Poor Bert, uh, who who it kind of takes a backseat to. Uh, I mean, also not a great guy. Yeah. With his ongoing affair with Mrs. What's Her Face, none Mildred's of them are great. Some, Mildred has some winners around her. Um, yeah, I mean that's right. Behind every great man is a great woman, and behind every great woman is some guy trying to take her down. At least she's got she's got Eve Arden uh, around her, propping her up. Yes, very it's true. Nice to have a good a good friend, a good noir friend. And Eve Arden is like the 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 golden era, golden age Hollywood friend she also got an oscar nomination i think for this oh um, yeah, so, sure well. the film deploys her very well to just like leaven the situation right when it needs it and and to cut through some bullshit before it gets back to the nonsense huh. and then uh and then we have the um 
the spoiled child, the, the oh, demon yeah. child of, of film noir. I mean, it's interesting, too, because I, for some reason in my head, I picked up somewhere the idea that, that she killed her sister, which is not the case. Like before um, you'd watched? Before yeah, before you'd I'd watched, watched it. Yeah, like I, said, I thought, I thought it was something that I had had no, spoiled, Kate, which Kate clearly is not like, the case. Like, like written off off screen. Uh, yeah, it's very weird exit for that character. It, it happens, it happens so abruptly that I, I, like rewound to make sure I was, I, I had not missed something that, sure. that they weren't. They did, they moved by it so quickly. Um, but to, uh, for me, I think the interesting thing then is that like. In my head, Vita was was a um, Ellen in uh, Leave Her to Heaven that, that just like willing to kill whoever got in her way, including her own sister. And that wasn't <laughs> the case. You know, it, it lowered the bar so low for her that I was like, okay, she's not that bad. She didn't kill her sister like I thought she was going to. Well, at least she didn't kill her sister. At least she didn't kill her sister. You know, she's not that bad. Um oh. But yeah, no, I, I mean, like we've already kind of talked about that she she is the flip side to Mildred's go get him by your bootstraps attitude where she's willing to put the work in at, at whatever job to advance herself and is able to take advantage of the, you know, uh, the quote unquote opportunities of the American dream. Whereas Vita is just like, I am owed these things because marketing and society has promised them to me as the hallmarks of a happy life. And if I do not have them, then I cannot be happy. And I will do, you know, anything short of labor to get them, such as claim to be pregnant. Her as a child, I guess. Or she, sleep with my has, mom's, my stepdad. She grows, she has character development in the sense that she does, um, she goes from just being a nasty child to doing horrible things. Yes. <laughs> um, it goes She's from betraying her mother again and again yeah, over, and who, over and over and every time Mildred just like I will do whatever and I guess that that is the purpose of the other daughter's death right is to be like well I lost the good one although she I says have... that she's her favorite from like the beginning too right if I remember correctly like that that Vita is so but anyway it just sort of reinforces the like all-consuming motherly instinct to the point that by the time we catch up to the main timeline she's willing to take the blame herself for her daughter's being a murderer so that her daughter does not go to jail. Yeah. And, and it, it does build. So it's just every, every decision she makes does steadily ramp up in, mm -hmm. in, in awfulness. So, mm -hmm. so that by the time you get to, um, to murder and, and affair with, with, with Monty, you, you like Ugh. are, you you are disgusted by it, but you're not even surprised. No. It's just it's just where it's naturally headed. She's a petulant child. I'm yeah, I mean, Monty's not great. Like, I'm not shedding any tears over oh. Monty, but... No, no, Monty's awful. awful. But Vita is just like, you know, she just never appreciates her mom. Like, that is... <laughs> Which, when you say it out loud, it's not like, on the surface, isn't that bad, but the movie does such a great job of especially because Mildred doesn't see it or is willing to look past it, that you're just constantly like, Mildred, smack that your daughter just like once just to get her to like understand. Yeah, uh, it's I, like it is her, it is it is Mildred's fatal flaw or mm -hmm. you know, her it's great her flaw love. Um, that, that she can't let go of the love for this this terrible, terrible child who will always find a way to go bigger 
and worse in in how she will fuck her mother over. Right, which is sort of an interesting reversal of Ellen, where Ellen is like arguably her fatal flaw is that she cannot love anything but her husband. Right, that um, that her her possessiveness of uh, of the novelist is is uh, all consuming is that she's willing to sacrifice her, uh, you know, and her pregnancy so that she can keep him. And this is where where I go back to being sympathetic toward Ellen to a point, just because she feels mentally unwell, whereas Mm. Veda, Veda just feels like, uh, like, like a pure caricature of a villain. I, I don't see them as quite, I, I, they're not cut from the, the same cloth. It may be similar. Ultimately, I feel I can, you spend so much time with Ellen that she feels like she, you you can feel her like trapping herself in her own in her own world and mm-hmm. and and convincing herself of these things and she's a woman who clearly needed help whereas Vita is given all of all of the leeway she's given opportunity she's but isn't given it Ellen's money. problem too is that she's given all the leeway also and everybody just keeps being like well that's Ellen don't get in her way I feel like I feel like what you watch happen I in Mildred we, Pierce is what happened to Ellen in the past with her dad. That's fair. No, that's a fair. That's a that, that's a fair way to look at the, the spoiled child. Who, what would what would what would Vita do um, with with Mildred out of the picture? What would Vita out on her own? Um, I think she'd be an Ellen. It, she would, you know, be like, "I'm going to get this man. I'm going to toss aside the other guy, and then." I don't want to, you know. And I and I hate. I would. I'm gonna kill his brother. This this is not a a a commentary on quality on either movie, but I would end up having, I if that if we saw that movie, I think I would have a little bit more sympathy for Vita, only in the sense that we would be, that we would be anchoring ourselves to her. Sure, like we are to Ellen. Whereas she's not a point of view character. Yeah, Vita is Vita is the one that is destroying. Mildred and and I care about Mildred so much more. Than, that's true. That's also true. Uh, than I cared about his face. No, that's that's all. That's all very fair. Um, but yeah. So yeah. It, it, so yeah. It hurts. It hurts to see that. Oh yeah. No. This. I mean. This is. I mean. Leave her to heaven is a great movie, but Mildred Pierce is you know five stars. My only slight complaint on the movie, the only thing that holds me back a bit, which would make me interested to see the miniseries. Is that I do just because there's so much scope to this movie, mm-hmm. I do feel it covers her ascent very quickly, um, and at, to the point where I like if if this was half an hour longer and it took more time, I don't think I'd care uh, sure. just because I I'm I'm enjoying it and I do feel like it rushes her rise to um, to wealth and and success mm-hmm. a bit a bit too quick to really. Um, to really get much nuance in there. But that's the only thing that kind of um, holds me back from like all time, all time status. It's still pretty high on my favorite films of the forties. Yeah. I don't think that's, I think it's a fair, fair critique, but you know, I'm just really curious to kind of talk about these two together and, and noir and melodrama and, and what that intersection is like. Yeah. Well, that we, we we went back and forth a bit on finding the right the right pairing here. Yeah, you also watched uh, um, the strange loves of Mar- no the which one did you um, watch what, that we almost did Martha Ivers uh, is that the one? 
It was, um, I watched, I watched a couple of uh, other ones for the strange affair of uncle Harry. That's right. Which Not is, the strange loves of Martha Ivers. I was getting confused with right, right. strange affair. Strange affair of uncle Harry is, is much more. It's got, uh, it's got George Sanders, uh, uh, trapped in what's, uh, a, a Gothic melodrama. That's it's less, it's less noir than, than even Rebecca or dragon wick. Uh, just to mm-hmm. go with a couple other touchstones in that area, but um, but it and it, and it's got a a truly laughably bad ending. Um, uh, like like among the most absurd studio tacked on things I have ever 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 seen. Hmm. Um, it's not quite at home with with noir though, so we we passed on that. And I also watched the uh, oh the sisters uh, one. The Dark Mirror, which I liked a lot, uh, just because watching Olivia de Havilland play twins, play uh, one of them evil, was a, a real delight. So, um, so if you want some some other familial noir drama with uh, with a double act, um, and you like Olivia de Havilland as much as I do, uh, then Dark Mirror is a is a good choice. Check it out. Um, yeah, but no, I think we I think we landed on the right the right pairing. That, that both are really doing a great job of splitting the difference between melodrama noir and uh, you know investing these interpersonal and familial relationships with as much stakes and drama as other films in the uh, other noir films do with a heist or uh, an assass- you know uh, an assassination attempt. Yeah, I think they find they find their own angles to it, um, but. Uh, but considering we're we don't we really don't spend that much time in noir on on the family dynamic and um, and especially within uh, within a single home like this. Honestly, yeah, I don't think you're going to find uh, t- uh, two um, two films that like just I don't know both both of these seize you in their own ways. They're 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 really accessible. Uh, they're really fascinating, and uh, and I highly highly recommend both. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, they're both great. I, I think it's both what makes them succeed as melodramas or as films, but also what sets them apart from other noirs that, that even when they do con- contain themselves to a single family, is that both of these films are still very interested in the characters and the character psychology and the the interiority of these of these people. Um, of you these, know, of these women, of these women specifically, absolutely, um, yeah. They're not they're not mechanisms for plot. They are the important thing in and of themselves. I I, I still Cor- Cornell Wilde may ostensibly be be the protagonist of of Lever to Heaven. But we still get so much time with just her. Like I feel like we get more insight into her thinking than we do I his. Agree. To- totally do. Um, and and between that and Mildred Pierce, both of them offer up something that we don't see nearly enough of in the classic noir era is is it um really putting focus first on on the female lead mm-hmm. yeah i mean even with the, even within this femme fatale season it's still been a lot of male protagonists yeah even even something where even double indemnity where where stanwick is delivering a career best performance you're you're you are with walter neff firmly um accessing this story through fred mcmurray Right. No. So yeah, I mean, just for that reason alone, it it, it is they they stand out. Never mind the high quality of each. I mean, I guess I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why this isn't 
a genre mixing that we see that much, right? Like, you know, we've we've talked before about how noir does well with other genres. At some point, we'll eventually get to a fantasy horror and sci-fi season, and we'll you know we'll see noir mixed with a bunch of different things at that point. But um, for as successful as these two films are, you know, it's not it's not a pairing that we get all that much outside of these movies and the other ones that we decided not to watch. By the fifties, um, you you already have noir tapering a little bit, um, and you already have melodrama blowing up. In a in a different way, I just I think that window is is pretty tight here. It's not like the classic noir era lasts for for that long. And there are so Oof. many. The the longer you spend on noir, the more you realize how many different corners of it there are. I I I still uh, I I can't think of too many too many other examples of ones that go as big as these two do in mm-hmm. in that that particular hybrid. Thinking more about the, the longevity of noir and you know neo noir and and all that and how we've come back around noir or whatever, I, I feel like most noir mo- noir most often gets integrated into other genres in a modern context, like a post classic noir context is to one degree or another pastiche, right? That it is like big flashing signposts of shadows and detectives and femme fatales and like you know, it. it it goes big so that you can understand the kind of film that you're in. And that's not, and I don't think that would work with melodrama, but then if you, you know, you take that away, there's, there's not much, I don't know. It, I had a, I had a thought. No, but, it's, it, it's a tricky, it's a, it's a tightrope to walk for sure. Right, It's just tougher to do. Like you have to, I mean, I think it's actually something we talked about, or at least I talk about a lot with with more modern noir films. That they are, that they are more about like the, 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 it's a little curdled, right? It's a little like solidified into these are the things that are noir, and you've got to have a little bit more flexibility in your mindset about what noir is in order to be able to adapt it to melodrama. And I think also, you know, that melodrama too had its heyday and kind of passed away, and is now more of a TV thing, right? Than gen- generally we do not see in in film. Um, we had uh, we we on one of our earlier standalone episodes. We we talked about fifties um, William Wyler Noir Desperate Hours mm. with, with Bogart, and there's there's the the American family being invaded, um, and and that should be a place where you could bring that that kind of sensibility in, and yet it's it doesn't really spend a ton of time. Right. Well, I think it's still. Into- no, I think that's a really good film to pull into this but i think it's because it's still focused on plot right it's still about like this is the pressure cooker situation that we're in how how are we going to deal with it how are we going to deal with these criminals etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's probably the other reason that it's so much more it's so more so much less common for melodrama and noir to come together is because of the fact that melodrama is character first and that these are films that are character first that incorporate murder <laughs> Um, yeah. No, that's such a that's such a smart way to go about accessing that too, Fred. Because uh, how many how how many characters in all of noir are given the the internal attention that that Mildred gets or that Ellen gets in 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 these movies? I right. Bit, it's not very... about the fun pulpy parts of noir. It's about uh-huh. the like soul corruption of noir married with melodrama. Um, and that's just not like as sexy 
Yeah. You know, if, if you're making yeah. a if you're making a fun B movie, you're not like we're really gonna dig deep on this character. You're like, no, there's gonna be a murder and a heist and a sexy lady and all this kind of stuff. Because noir n- noir has a tendency to overplot and yeah. um and well and to be commercial right and you, yeah it's it's those b movie thrills it's right. um it, it's hard boiled it's mile a minute dialogue and action and um and moving from scene to scene and it isn't it isn't allowing that internal to really come forward right. i mean this is basically like for the time deconstructions of of noir in a certain sense right if you are thinking about it as like what if you took this noir setup but then we spend all this time not trying to figure out who did it, but just being like, why did she do it and who was she? And and I do think that an interesting counterpart, even though we even though the the strange uh the uh strange case, Un- the strange Uncle affair Henry. of Uncle Harry, um, even though we did not go that route, gothic noir or like gas lamp noir mm. does allow for a little bit more of that angle for to sure. come through just because in that like gothic literary tradition you get um and and you know things like gaslight or things like the heiress or or rebecca are all skirting the the noir lines in their own way um but they also do allow a little bit more of that uh, of of those character moments to come through we're just um uh, you're just not getting the the same uh, hard-boiled thrills that we usually think of with noir. So, Fred, uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you've watched so recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? It's time for What's in the Box. It, it makes me feel like we should have some kind of like fun music to, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's one of the little mini games in a, in a game show where you're like, all right, and this is when you spin the wheel on, uh, what's uh, in the box. We'll the I will, or we need a, we, we need to make it's it sound Paltrow's head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> or a nuclear bomb, depend, you know, take your reference. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you know, it's been a minute since we recorded one of these. Um, so I'm going to kind of pace myself on, on movies I've really loved. Um, and first up, uh, I'm going to do a, I, I've been filling in the gaps on, um, all the sight and sound polls. I made myself a list of, uh, ah, nice. every, every film to make, uh, the critics sight and sound poll list, at least top 100 from, uh, for every year. Um, and then slowly making my way through and, and watching, filling in the gaps, um, so uh, two off of that list. One is one that we actually talked about doing for the season and decided not to um, as part of the pre-noir phase, but um, uh, Murnau's uh, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Uh, loved it. He's just such a gifted image maker that uh, it still looks phenomenal. Um, and, you know, I think it would have been interesting to talk about here but it is it, it definitely is more a field from noir than the ones that we selected. So I think we picked the right ones, but I think it could have been a part of that conversation about how it's approaching this, you know, the woman from the city who's like, hey, sexy farmer, let's ditch your wife and kill your wife and come come live with me. Um but uh but no, I yeah, I thought it was great. And then um also the earrings of Madame de uh by Max Ophels. Uh also, you know, his uh 
his formal control just like slowly swept me up in the romance um so that by the end the terrible dramatic irony of of how it all must fall apart uh was was I feel like I need to give that one another, really got me. another another spin. I like I liked it, but but I I feel like I I didn't love it to the degree that its reputation ought to. And I it's like definitely, Opals. yeah. I mean, it's definitely a. Uh, I mean, to be fair, this is my only Opals, but it feels you know. So I don't know. It, to me, watching it for my first Opals, I was like, I had to learn his his language, his cinematic language a little bit. But then once I felt like I got on board, I was like, okay, I see what we're doing yeah. here. I know that's that's the one that, that everyone everyone I like uh, Letter from an Unknown Woman. Um, I like Lola Montez. Uh, I think it's probably my next one of his that I want to watch. Yeah, they're good, uh, but uh, but most people like Earrings of Madame Day the best. I think it's also uh, like three great performances at the the heart of it too. Uh, not having seen the others, but anyway, what what have you watched lately? All right, um, I am. I, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with a 2023 release. Uh, it's been um, it, I think it's I think there's a lot that this year's had to offer so far, but I have been a bit struggling to to find the ones I really love. Uh, so to to date, my favorite movie I've seen this year is a is a big old Bollywood family uh, melodrama. Uh, called Rocky Arani Ki Prem Kahani. Um, it's it's got Ali Abat and Ranveer Singh, uh, and also Jaya Bachchan and Dharmedra. So two two uh, legends of the genre. Um, it's I, I don't always love the 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 family focused uh, bo- Bollywood films quite as much uh, mm. as as the ones that are more pure romance. And there is a lot of romance here, so that's good. But um, I really liked how this approached the family dynamics from both sides. Music's wonderful, color palette, absolutely stunning. It's from Karen Johar, who did Kuch Kuch Hotahe, which is one of my very favorites. It's uh, it's great. Ali Abat uh, and Ranveer Singh are both are both wonderful. Uh, highly recommend. It's on Prime. Nice. Yeah, I've got a long list uh, now of Bollywood films you've recommended that I'm. Uh... Just waiting when life quiets down a little bit more, so I can be like, "All right, I'm gonna commit three hours to this fucking movie." And yeah, that's the that's the hardest part. Uh, although, if, if you want, if you if you want to commit three hours instead to snappier, more action forward things, both uh, uh, Jawan and and Pathan are two good choices this year. And feature uh, old man Shah Rukh Khan, proven he's still got it. Lovely. Uh, well, yeah, eventually I'll, I'll be catching up with you and I'll start uh, hopefully recommending these as well. And just being like, Tristan was right. These were great. Okay. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time when we check in on a pair of fall guys between Scarlet Street and Framed. It's going to be a week of patsies here on Celluloid Dirt. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>